Chapter Thirty Eight of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Varney the Vampire, Volume One, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter Thirty Eight. Marchdale's Offer. The Consultation at Bannerworth Hall. THE MORNING OF THE DUEL Mr. Chillingworth was much annoyed to see Jack Pringle in the hall, and Jack was somewhat surprised at seeing Mr. Chillingworth there at that time of the morning. They had but little time to indulge in their mutual astonishment, for a servant came to announce that Sir Francis Varney would see them both. Without saying anything to the servant or each other, they ascended the staircase and were shown into the apartment where Sir Francis Varney received them. "'Gentlemen,' said Sir Francis, in his usual bland tone, "'you are welcome.' "'Sir Francis,' said Mr. Chillingworth, "'I have come upon matters of some importance. "'May I crave a separate audience?' "'And I, too,' said Jack Pringle. "'I come as the friend of Admiral Bell. "'I want a private audience. "'But stay, I don't care a rope's end who knows who I am "'or what I come about. "'Say you are ready to name time and place.' and I'm as dumb as a figurehead. That is saying something, at all events, and now I'm done. Why, gentlemen, said Sir Francis, with a quiet smile, as you have both come upon the same errand, and as there may arise a controversy upon the point of precedence, you had better be both present, as I must arrange this matter myself upon due inquiry. I do not exactly understand this, said Mr. Chillingworth. Do you, Mr. Pringle? Perhaps you can enlighten me? If, said Jack, as how you came here upon the same errand as I, and I as you, why we both come about fighting Sir Francis Varney. Yes, said Sir Francis. What Mr. Pringle says is, I believe, correct to a letter. I have a challenge from both your principles, and am ready to give you both the satisfaction you desire, provided the first encounter will permit me the honor of joining in the second. You, Mr. Pringle, are aware of the chances of war? I should say so, said Jack, with a wink and a nod of a familiar character. I've seen a few of them. Will you proceed to make the necessary agreement between you both gentlemen? My affection for the one equals fully the good will I bear the other, and I cannot give a preference in so delicate a matter. Proceed, gentlemen. Mr. Chillingworth looked at Jack, and Jack Pringle looked at Mr. Chillingworth, and then the former said, Well, the admiral means fighting, and I am come to settle the necessaries. Pray let me know what are your terms, Mr. What-do-you-call-em. I am agreeable to anything that is at all reasonable. Pistols, I presume? Sir Francis Varney, said Mr. Chillingworth, I cannot consent to carry on this office, unless you can appoint a friend who will settle these matters with us, myself at least. And I too, said Jack Pringle. We don't want to bear down an enemy. Admiral Bell ain't the man to do that, and if he were, I'm not the man to back him in doing what isn't fair or right, but he won't do it. But, gentlemen, this must not be. Mr. Henry Bannerworth must not be disappointed, and Admiral Bell must not be disappointed. Moreover, I have accepted the two cartels, and I am ready and willing to fight, one at a time, I presume. "'Sir Francis, 
After what you have said, I must take upon myself, on the part of Mr. Henry Bannerworth, to decline meeting you, if you cannot name a friend with whom I can arrange this affair. Ah, said Jack Pringle, that's right enough. I recollect very well when Jack Misen fought Tom Foremast. They had their seconds. Admiral Bell can't do anything in the dark. No, no, damn ye all must be above board. Gentlemen, said Sir Francis Varney, you see the dilemma I am in. Your principles have both challenged me. I am ready to fight anyone, or both of them, as the case may be. Distinctly understand that because it is a notion of theirs that I will not do so, or that I shrink from them, but I am a stranger in this neighborhood, and have no one whom I could call upon to relinquish so much as they run the risk of doing by attending me to the field. Then your acquaintances are no friends, damn ye said Jack Pringle, spitting through his teeth into the bars of a beautifully polished grate. I'd stick to anybody, the devil himself, leave alone a vampire, if so be as how I had been his friend and drunk from the same can. They are a set of lovers. I have not been here long enough to form any such friendships, Mr. Chillingworth, but can confidently rely upon your honor and that of your principal, and will freely and fairly meet him. But, Sir Francis, you forget the fact, in thus acting, myself for Mr. Bannerworth, and this person for Admiral Bell, we do much, and have our own characters at stake, lives and fortunes. These may be small, but they are everything to us. Allow me to say, on my own behalf, that I will not permit my principal to meet you unless you can name a second, as is usual with gentlemen in such occasions. I regret, while I declare to you my entire willingness to meet you, that I cannot comply through utter inability to do so with your request. Let this to forth to the world, as I have stated it, and let it be an answer to any aspersions that may be uttered as to my unwillingness to fight. There was a pause of some moments. Mr. Chillingworth was resolved that, come what would, he would not permit Henry to fight, unless Sir Francis Varney himself should appoint a friend, and then they could meet upon equal terms. Jack Pringle whistled, and spit, and chewed, and turned his quid, hitched up his trousers, and looked wistfully from one to the other, as he said, So then it's likely to be no fight at all, Sir Francis What's-A-Name. It seems like it, Mr. Pringle replied Varney, with a with-meaning smile, unless you can be more complacent towards myself and kindly towards the Admiral. Why, not exactly that, said Jack. It's a pity to stop a good play in the beginning, just because some little thing is wrong in the tackling. Perhaps your skill and genius may enable us to find some medium course that we may pursue with pleasure and profit. What say you, Mr. Pringle? All I know about genius, as you call it, is the flying Dutchman, or some such odd, out-of-the-way fish. But as I said, I am not one to spoil sport, nor more is the Admiral. Oh, no, we is all true men and good. I believe it, said Varney, bowing politely. You needn't keep your figurehead on the move. I can see you just as well. Howsoever, as I was saying, I don't like to spoil sport and sooner than both parties should be disappointed, my principal shall become your second, Sir Francis. What, Admiral Bell? exclaimed Varney, lifting his eyebrows with surprise. What, Charles Holland's uncle? exclaimed Mr. Chillingworth, in accents of amazement. And why not? said Jack, with great gravity. 
I will pledge my word, Jack Pringle's word, that Admiral Bell shall be second to Sir Francis Varney during his scrimmage with Mr. Henry Bannerworth. That will let the matter go on. There can be no back out then, eh? continued Jack Pringle, with a knowing nod at Chillingworth as he spoke. "'That will, I hope, remove your scruples, Mr. Chillingworth,' said Varney, with a courteous smile. "'But will Admiral Bell do this?' "'His second says so, and has, I dare say, influence enough with him to induce that person to act in conformity with his promise. "'In course he will. Do you think he would be the man to hang back? Oh, no.' He would be the last to leave Jack Pringle in the lurch. No. Depend upon it, Sir Francis. He'll be as sure to do what I say as I have said it. After that assurance, I cannot doubt it, said Sir Francis Varney. This act of kindness will indeed lay me under a deep and lasting obligation to Admiral Bell, which I fear I shall never be able to pay. You need not trouble yourself about that, said Jack Pringle. The Admiral will credit all, and you can pay off old scores when his turn comes in the field. I will not forget, said Varney. He deserves every consideration. But now, Mr. Chillingworth, I presume that we may come to some understanding respecting this meeting, which you were so kind as to do me the honor of seeking. I cannot object to its taking place. I shall be most happy to meet your second in the field and arrange with him. I imagine that, under the circumstances, that it will be barely necessary to go that length of ceremony. Future interviews can be arranged later. Name the time and place, and after that we can settle all the rest on the ground. Yes, said Jack. It will be time enough, surely, to see the Admiral when we are upon the ground. I'll warrant the old buffer is a true brick as ever was. There's no flinching about him. I am satisfied, said Varney. And I also, said Chillingworth. But understand, Sir Francis, any fault for seconds makes the meeting a blank. I will not doubt Mr. Pringle's honor so much as to believe it possible. I'm damned, said Jack. If you ain't a trump card, and no mistake, it's a great pity as you is a wampire. The time, Mr. Chillingworth? Tomorrow, at seven o'clock, replied that gentleman. The place, sir? The best place that I can think of is a level meadow, halfway between here and Bannerworth Hall. But that is your privilege, Sir Francis Varney. I waive it, and am much obliged to you for the choice of the spot. It seems of the best character imaginable. I will be punctual. I think we have nothing further to arrange now, said Mr. Chillingworth. You will meet with Admiral Bell. Certainly. I believe there is nothing more to be done. This affair is very satisfactorily arranged, and much better than I anticipated. Good morning, Sir Francis, said Mr. Chillingworth. Good morning. Adieu, said Sir Francis, with a courteous salutation. Good day, Mr. Pringle, and commend me to the Admiral, whose services will be of infinite value to me. Don't mention it, said Jack. The Admiral's the man as'd lend anybody a helping hand in case of distress like the present, and I'll pledge my word, Jack Pringle's too, as that he'll do what's right and give up his turn to Mr. Henry Bannerworth, cause you see he can have his turn afterwards. You know, it's only waiting a while. That's all, said Sir Francis. 
Jack Pringle made a sea bow and took his leave, as he followed Mr. Chillingworth, and they both left the house together to return to Bannerworth Hall. Well, said Mr. Chillingworth, I am glad that Sir Francis Varney has got over the difficulty of having no seconds, for it would not be proper or safe to meet a man without a friend with him. It ain't the right thing, said Jack, hitching up his trousers. But I was afeard as how he would back out, and that would be just the wrong thing for the Admiral. He'd go raving mad. They had got but very few paces from Sir Francis Varney's house when they were joined by Marchdale. Ah, he said as he came up, I see you have been to Sir Francis Varney's, if I may judge from the direction whence you're coming and your proximity. Yes, we have, said Mr. Chillingworth. I thought you had left these parts. I had intended to do so, replied Marchdale, but second thoughts are sometimes best, you know. Certainly. I have so much friendship for the family at the hall that notwithstanding I am compelled to be absent from the mansion itself, yet I cannot quit the neighborhood while there are circumstances of such a character hanging about them. I will remain and see if there be not something arising in which I may be useful to them in some matter. It is very disinterested of you. You will remain here for some time, I suppose? Yes, undoubtedly, unless, as I do not anticipate, I should see any occasion to quit my present quarters. I tell you what it is, said Jack Pringle. If you had been here half an hour earlier, you could have seconded the Wampire. Seconded? Yes, we're here to challenge. A double challenge? Yes, but in confiding this matter to you, Mr. Marchdale, you will make no use of it to the exploding of this affair. By so doing, you will seriously damage the honor of Mr. Henry Bannerworth. I will not. You may rely upon it. But, Mr. Chillingworth, do I not see you in the character of a second? You do, sir. To Mr. Henry? The same, sir. Have you reflected upon the probable consequences of such an act, should any serious mischief occur? What I have undertaken, Mr. Marchdale, I will go through with. The consequences I have duly considered, and yet you see me in the character of Mr. Henry Bannerworth's friend. I am happy to see you as such, and I do not think Henry could find a worthier. But this is beside the question. What induced me to make the remark was this. Had I been at the hall, you will admit that Henry Bannerworth would have chosen myself, without any disparagement to you, Mr. Chillingworth. Well, sir, what then? Why, I am a single man. I can live, reside, and go anywhere. One country will suit me as well as another. I shall suffer no loss. But as for you, you will be ruined in every particular, for if you go in the character of a second, you will not be excused. For all the penalties incurred, your profession of surgeon will not excuse you. I see all that, sir. What I propose is that you should accompany the parties to the field, but in your own proper character of surgeon, and permit me to take that of second to Mr. Bannerworth. This cannot be done, unless by Mr. Henry Bannerworth's consent, said Mr. Chillingworth. Then I will accompany you to Bannerworth Hall and see Mr. Henry, whom I will request to permit me to do what I have mentioned to you. 
Mr. Chillingworth could not but admit the reasonableness of this proposal, and it was agreed they should return to Bannerworth Hall in company. Here they arrived in very short time after, and entered together. "'And now,' said Mr. Chillingworth, "'I will go and bring our two principals, who will be as much astonished to find themselves engaged in the same quarrel, as I was to find myself sent on a similar errand to Sir Francis with our friend Mr. John Pringle.' "'Oh, not John. Jack Pringle, you mean,' said that individual. Chillingworth now went in search of Henry, and sent him to the apartment where Mr. Marchdale was with Jack Pringle, and then he found the Admiral waiting the return of Jack with impatience. "'Admiral,' he said, "'I perceive you are unwell this morning?' "'Unwell be damned,' said the Admiral, starting up with surprise. Whoever heard that old Admiral Bell looked ill just before he was going into action? I say it's a scandalous lie. Admiral, Admiral, I didn't say you were ill, only you looked ill, a little nervous or so. Rather pale, huh? Is it not so? Confound you, do you think I want to be physicked? I tell you, I have not a little, but a great inclination to give you a good keel-hauling. I don't want a doctor just yet. But it may not be so long, you know, Admiral. But there is Jack Pringle awaiting you below. Will you go to him? There is a particular reason. He has something to communicate from Sir Francis Varney, I believe. The Admiral gave a look of some amazement at Mr. Chillingworth, and then he said, muttering to himself, If Jack Pringle should have betrayed me. But, no, he could not do that. He is too true. I'm sure of Jack. And how did that son of a gallopot hint about the odd fish I sent Jack to? Filled with a dubious kind of belief, which he had about something he had heard of Jack Pringle, he entered the room where he met Marchdale, Jack Pringle, and Henry Bannerworth. Immediately afterwards, Mr. Chillingworth entered the apartment. I have, said he, been to Sir Francis Varney, and there had an interview with him and with Mr. Pringle when I found we were both intent upon the same object, namely an encounter with the knight by our principals. "'Eh?' said the Admiral. "'What?' exclaimed Henry. "'Had he challenged you, Admiral?' "'Challenged me!' exclaimed Admiral Bell, with a round oath. "'I—however, since it comes to this, I must admit I challenged him.' "'That's what I did,' said Henry Bannerworth, after a moment's thought and I perceive we have both fallen into the same line of conduct. That is the fact, said Mr. Chillingworth. Both Mr. Pringle and I went there to settle the preliminaries, and we found an insurmountable bar to any meeting taking place at all. He wouldn't fight, then? exclaimed Henry. I see it all now. Not fight, said Admiral Bell, with a sort of melancholy disappointment. Damn the cowardly rascal! Tell me, Jack Pringle, what did the long horse-marine-looking slab say to it? He told me he would fight. Why, he ought to be made to stand sentry over the wind. You challenged him in person, too, I suppose, said Henry. Yes, confound him. I went there last night. And I, too. It seems to me, said Marchdale, that this affair has not been indiscreetly conducted but somewhat unusually and strangely, to say the least of it. 
"'You see,' said Chillingworth, "'Sir Francis was willing to fight both Henry and the Admiral, as he told us.' "'Yes,' said Jack. "'He told us he would fight us both, "'if so be as his light was not doused in the first brush.' "'That was all that was wanted,' said the Admiral. "'We could expect no more.' "'But then he desired to meet you without any second. "'But, of course, I would not accede to this proposal.' The responsibility was too great and too unequally borne by the parties engaged in the rencontre. Decidedly, said Henry, but it is unfortunate, very unfortunate. Very, said the Admiral, very. What a rascally thing it is there ain't another rogue in the country to keep him in countenance. I thought it was a pity to spoil sport, said Jack Pringle. It was a pity a good intention should be spoiled, and I promised the wampire that if as how he would fight, you should second him, and you'd meet him to do so. Eh? Who? I? exclaimed the admiral, in some perplexity. Yes, that is the truth, said Mr. Chillingworth. Mr. Pringle said you would do so, and he, then and there, pledged his word that you should meet him on the ground and second him on it. Yes, said Jack. You must do it. I knew you would not spoil sport, and that there had better be a fight than no fight. I believe you'd sooner see a scrimmage than none, and so it's all arranged. Very well, said the Admiral. I only wish Mr. Henry Bannerworth had been his second. I think I was entitled to the first meeting. No, said Jack, you weren't, for Mr. Chillingworth was there first. First come, first served, you know. Well, well, I mustn't grumble at another man's luck. Mine'll come in turn. But it had better be so than a disappointment altogether. I'll be second to this Sir Francis Varney. He shall have fair play, as I'm an admiral. But damned, he shall fight. Yes, yes, he shall fight. And to this conclusion I would come, said Henry. I wish him to fight. Now I will take care that he shall not have any opportunity of putting me on one side quietly. There is one thing, observed Marchdale, that I wish to propose. After what has passed, I should not have returned, had I not some presentiment that something was going forward in which I could be useful to my friend. Oh, said the Admiral, with a huge twist of his countenance. What I was about to say was this. Mr. Chillingworth has much to lose as he is situated, and I nothing as I am placed. I am chained down to no spot of earth. I am above following a profession. My means, I mean, place me above the necessity. Now, Henry, allow me to be your second in this affair. Allow Mr. Chillingworth to attend in his professional capacity. He may be of service, of great service to one of the principals. Whereas, if he go in any other capacity, he will inevitably have his own safety to consult. That is most unquestionably true, said Henry, and, to my mind, the best plan that can be proposed. What do you say, Admiral Bell? Will you act with Mr. Marchdale in this affair? Oh, I, yes, certainly, I don't care. Mr. Marchdale is Mr. Marchdale, I believe, and that's all I care about. If we quarrel today, and have anything to do tomorrow, in course, tomorrow I can put off my quarrel for next day. It'll keep. That's all I have to say at present. 
"'Then this is a final arrangement?' said Mr. Chillingworth. "'It is.' But, Mr. Bannerworth, in resigning my character of second to Mr. Marchdale, I only do so because it appears and seems to be the opinion of all present that I can be much better employed in another capacity. Certainly, Mr. Chillingworth, and I cannot but feel that I am under the same obligations to you for the readiness and zeal with which you have acted. I have done what I have done, said Chillingworth, because I believed it was my duty to do so. "'Mr. Chillingworth has undoubtedly acted most friendly and efficiently this affair,' said Marchdale, "'and he does not relinquish the part for the purpose of escaping a friendly deed, "'but to perform one in which he may act in a capacity that no one else can.' "'That is true,' said the Admiral. "'And now,' said Chillingworth, "'you are to meet tomorrow morning in the meadow at the bottom of the valley.' halfway between here and Sir Francis Varney's house, at seven o'clock in the morning. More conversation passed among them, and it was agreed that they should meet early the next morning, and that, of course, the affair should be kept a secret. Marchdale, for that night, should remain in the house, and the Admiral should appear as if little or nothing was the matter, and he and Jack Pringle retired to talk over in private all the arrangements. Henry Bannerworth and Marchdale also retired, and Mr. Chillingworth, after a time retired, promising to be with them in time for the meeting next morning. Much of that day was spent by Henry Bannerworth in his own apartment, in writing documents and letters of one kind and another, but at night he had not finished, for he had been compelled to be about, and in Flora's presence, to prevent anything from being suspected. Marchdale was much with him, and in secret examined the arms, ammunition, and bullets, and saw all was right for the next morning, and when he had done, he said, "'Now, Henry, you must permit me to insist that you take some hours' repose, else you will scarcely be as you ought to be.' "'Very good,' said Henry. "'I have just finished, and can take your advice.' After many thoughts and reflections, Henry Bannerworth fell into a deep sleep, and slept several hours in calmness and quietude, and at an early hour he awoke and saw Marchdale sitting by him. "'Is it time, Marchdale? I have not overslept myself, have I?' "'No, time enough, time enough,' said Marchdale. "'I should have let you sleep longer, but I should have awakened you in good time.' It was now the gray light of morning, and Henry arose and began to prepare for the encounter. Marchdale stole to Admiral Bell's chamber, but he and Jack Pringle were ready. Few words were spoken, and those few were in a whisper, and the whole party left the hall in as noiseless a manner as possible. It was a mild morning, and yet it was cold at that time of the morning, just as day is beginning to dawn in the east. There was, however, ample time to reach the rendezvous. It was a curious party, that which was now proceeding towards the spot appointed for the duel, the result of which might have so important an effect on the interests of those who were to be engaged in it. It would be difficult for us to analyze the different and conflicting emotions that filled the breasts of the various individuals composing that party, the hopes and fears, the doubts and surmises that were given utterance to, though we are compelled to acknowledge that, though to Henry, the character of the man he was going to meet in mortal fight was of a most ambiguous and undefined nature, 
and though no one could imagine the means he might be endowed with for protection against the arms of man, Henry, as we said, strode firmly forward with unflinching resolution. His heart was set on recovering the happiness of his sister, and he would not falter. So far, then, we may consider that at length proceedings of a hostile character were so far clearly and fairly arranged between Henry Bannerworth and that most mysterious being who certainly, from some cause or another, had betrayed no inclination to meet an opponent in that manner which is sanctioned, bad as it is, by the usages of society. But whether his motive was one of cowardice or mercy remained yet to be seen. It might be that he feared himself receiving some mortal injury, which would at once put a stop to that preternatural career of existence which he affected to shudder at, and yet evidently took considerable pains to prolong. Upon the other hand, it is just possible that some consciousness of invulnerability on his own part, or of great power to injure his antagonist, might be the cause why he had held back so long from fighting the duel, and placed so many obstacles in the way of the usual necessary arrangements incidental to such occasions. Now, however, there would seem to be no possible means of escape. Sir Francis Varney must fight or fly, for he was surrounded by too many opponents. To be sure, he might have appealed to the civil authorities to protect him, and to sanction him in his refusal to commit what undoubtedly is a legal offense, but then there cannot be a question that the whole of the circumstances would come out and meet the public eye, the result of which would be his acquisition of a reputation as unenviable as it would be universal. It had so happened that the peculiar position of the Bannerworth family kept their acquaintance within extremely narrow limits, and greatly indisposed them to set themselves up as marks for peculiar observation. Once holding, as they had, a proud position in the county, and being looked upon as quite magnates of the land, they did not now court the prying eye of curiosity to look upon their poverty, but rather with a gloomy melancholy they lived apart, and repelled the advances of society by a cold reserve which few could break through. Had this family suffered in any noble cause, or had the misfortunes which had come over them, and robbed their ancestral house of its luster, been an unavoidable dispensation of providence, they would have borne the hard position with a different aspect. But it must be remembered that to the faults, the vices, and the criminality of some of their race was to be attributed their present depressed state. It has been seen during the progress of our tale that its actions had been tolerably confined to Bannerworth Hall, its adjacent meadows, and the seat of Sir Francis Varney, the only person at any distance knowing anything of the circumstances or feeling any interest in them being mr chillingworth the surgeon who from personal feeling as well as from professional habit was not likely to make a family's affairs a subject of gossip a change however was at hand a change of a most startling and alarming character to varney one which he might expect yet not be well prepared for this period of serenity was to pass away, and he was to become most alarmingly popular. We will not, however, anticipate, but proceed at once to detail as briefly as may be the hostile meeting. It would appear that Varney, now that he had once consented to the definitive arrangements of a duel, shrunk not in any way from carrying them out, 
nor in the slightest attempted to retard arrangements which might be fatal to himself. The early morning was one of those cloudy ones so frequently occurring in our fickle climate, when the cleverest weather prophet would find it difficult to predict what the next hour might produce. There was a kind of dim gloominess over all objects, and as there were no bright lights, there were no deep shadows, the consequence of which was a sameness of effect over the landscape that robbed it of many of its usual beauties. Such was the state of things when Marchdale accompanied Henry and Admiral Bell from Bannerworth Hall across the garden in the direction of the hilly wood, close to which was the spot intended for the scene of encounter. Jack Pringle came on at a lazy pace behind with his hands in his pockets, and looking as unconcerned as if he had just come out for a morning stroll, and scarcely knew whether he saw what was going on or not. The curious contortion into which he twisted his countenance, and the different odd-looking lumps that appeared in it from time to time, may be accounted for by a quid of unusual size, which he seemed to be masticating with a relish quite horrifying to one unused to so barbarous a luxury. The admiral had strictly enjoined him not to interfere on pain of being considered a lubber and no seaman for the remainder of his existence, threatened penalties which, of course, had their own weight with Jack, and accordingly he came just to see the row in as quiet a way as possible, perhaps not without a hope that something might turn up in the shape of Cause's belly that might justify him in adopting a threatening attitude towards somebody. "'Now, Master Henry,' said the Admiral, "'none of your palaver to me as we go along. Recollect I don't belong to your party, you know. I've stood friend to two or three fellows in my time, but if anybody had said to me, "'Admiral Bell, the next time you go out on a quiet little shooting party, "'it'll be a second to a vampire. "'I'd have said, you're a liar. "'Howsomever, damn me, here you goes. "'And what I mean to say is this, Mr. Henry, "'that I'd second even a Frenchman rather than he shouldn't fight when he's asked.' "'That's liberal of you,' said Henry, at all events. "'I believe you it is,' said the Admiral. So mind if you don't hit em, I'm not a-going to tell you how. All you've got to do is to fire low, but that's no business of mine. Shiver my timbers, I oughtn't to tell you, but damn you, hit em if you can. Admiral, said Henry, I can hardly think you are even preserving a neutrality in the matter, putting aside my own partisanship as regards your own man. Oh, hang him. I'm not going to let him creep out of the thing on such a shabby pretense, I can tell you. I think I ought to have gone to his house this morning. Only, as I said, I never would cross his threshold again. I won't. I wonder if he'll come, said Mr. Marchdale to Henry. After all, you know, he may take to flight and shun an encounter which, it is evident, he has entered into but tardily. I hope not, said Henry, and yet I must own that your supposition has several times crossed my mind. If, however, he do not meet me, he never can appear the country, and we should at least be rid of him and all his troublesome importunities concerning the hall. I would not allow that man on any account to cross the threshold of my house as its tenant or its owner. Why, it ain't usual, said the admiral to let one's house to two people at once, unless you seem quite to forget that I've taken yours. I may as well remind you of it. 
"'Hurrah!' said Jack Pringle at that moment. "'What's the matter with you? Who told you to hurrah?' "'Enemy in the offing,' said Jack. Three or four points to the southwest.' "'So he is, by Jove, dodging about among the trees. "'Come now, this vampire's a decenter fellow than I thought him. "'He means, after all, to let us have a pop at him.' They had now reached so close to the spot that Sir Francis Varney, who to all appearance had been waiting, emerged from among the trees, rolled up in his dismal-looking cloak, and, if possible, looking longer and thinner than ever he had looked before. His face wore a singular, cadaverous-looking aspect. His very lips were white, and there was a curious, pinkish-looking circle round each of his eyes that imparted to his whole countenance a most uninviting appearance. He turned his eyes from one to the other of those who were advancing towards him, until he saw the admiral, upon which he gave such a grim and horrible smile that the old man exclaimed, "'I say, Jack, you lubber, there's a face for a figurehead.' "'Aye, aye, sir.' Did you ever see such a damned grin as that in your life in any latitude? Aye, aye, sir. You did, you swab. I should think so. It's a lie, and you know it. Very good, said Jack. Don't you recollect when that ere iron bullet walked over your head, leaving a nice little nick all the way off Bergen up Zoom? That was the time. Blessed if you didn't give just such a grin as that. I didn't, you rascal. And I say you did. Mutiny, by God. Go to blazes. How far this contention might have gone, having now reached its culminating point, had the Admiral and Jack been alone, it is hard to say. But as it was, Henry and Marchdale interfered, and so the quarrel was patched up for the moment in order to give place to more important affairs. Varney seemed to think that after the smiling welcome he had given to his second, he had done quite enough, for there he stood, tall and gaunt and motionless, if we may accept an occasional singular movement of the mouth and a clap together of his teeth at times, which was enough to make anybody jump to hear. "'For heaven's sake,' said Marchdale, "'do not let us trifle at such a moment as this, Mr. Pringle. You really had no business here.' "'Mr. Who?' said Jack. "'Pringle, I believe, is your name,' returned Marchdale. "'It were, but blowed if ever I was called Mr. before.' The Admiral walked up to Sir Francis Varney and gave him a nod that looked much more like one of defiance than of salutation, to which the vampire replied by a low, courtly bow. "'Oh, brother,' muttered the old Admiral, if I was to double up my backbone like that, I should never get it down straight again. Well, all's right. You've come. That's all you could do, I suppose. I am here, said Varney, and therefore it becomes a work of supererogation to remark that I've come. Oh, does it? I never bolted a dictionary, and therefore I don't know exactly what you mean. Step aside with me a moment, Admiral Bell, and I will tell you what you are to do with me after I am shot, if such should be my fate. Do with you? Damned if I'll do anything with you. I don't expect you will regret me. You will eat. Eat? Yes, and drink as usual, no doubt, notwithstanding being witness to the decease of a fellow creature. 
Belay there, don't call yourself a fellow creature of mine. I ain't a vampire. But there's no knowing what you may be. And now listen to my instructions, for as you're my second, you cannot very well refuse to me a few friendly offices. Rain is falling. Step beneath this ancient tree, and I will talk to you. End of chapter 38 Recording by Roger Moline